Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for finding the Toronto Today podcast here for a Wednesday, April 13th. Uh, we talk about an important arrest in the city. Um, I think it got um, some attention. I'm not sure it got the maximum it should have. So we'll talk about that. What happened in Toronto with the arrest and two first degree murder charges in two very recent deaths just Saturday and last Thursday. Um, it's not too far a stretch to say Toronto may have stopped a serial killer in his tracks. That's what they believe they have done with these particular arrests. We'll talk about that on the show. Uh, Chatterbox with Kelly Cotrera and Mike Drolet on the program also. And we talked to Dr. Mike Moffat about not just housing prizes, but sort of flight from Toronto, especially parents of young kids. They want space. They want affordability. They want sort of that the, the dream that's harder to achieve in Toronto, not just because of geography, but because of finances as well. It's all coming up on Toronto Today, and it begins now. So Ottawa last night does this. They went there bringing back a mask mandate. This is very interesting. I suppose um, I, th- I made the point over the weekend, and I crowd surf this. You can crowd surf stuff sometimes, put it out there, see how people respond. And I heard back from a few doctors. I'm telling you, the last two weeks I've heard more um, privately from doctors and epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists um, than I have in a while because I think we're, we're building towards these tension points. There's some really real ugliness in the air, and I'm going to address some of that on the show today. Um, I mean, I can't call for it to stop, but it's gross. It's uh, from one direction towards the other, and I'm going to get to it probably in the uh, in the 8 o'clock hour uh, as we go um, around 8.05. So I want you to you know, make a point of that. Be back for that. But Ottawa is going to move a uh, towards a measure that will that the provincial government said you don't have to do anymore on March 21st. And that's requiring students and staff to wear masks. This appears to be both at the elementary level and both at the secondary level. Is it by the way, is it worse at the secondary level in terms of uh, spread or absences or is it worse at the elementary level? We don't know because Outside of mentioning some cases and staff absences, no numbers were utilized that I can see looking through the looking through the minutes of the meeting, looking through the reports of people who were at this two hour meeting. There just isn't a lot of data like I want numbers. Feelings matter. Emotions matter. But we're to the point 25, 26 months in where we need hard evidence. We need data. We got to do stuff based on numbers. And I've assailed the provincial government and assailed, uh, you know, Ontario for not giving us more information. Of course I have. The more information, the better. If you're going to manage your own individual risk. Now, remember, there's some bad actors out there who don't want us to measure our own individual risk, who say there isn't data out there. How are we supposed to do this? You wouldn't like the data that was provided. If anything, the province should give you more data about these things. So eight trustees voted in favor of a motion by one trustee named Mark Fisher. One opposed the move. Three abstained. By the way, this is a huge problem with um, democracy, bureaucracy, and uh, and paid positions. At what point in time, at what point in time do you not think it's the most important vote I give in the calendar year? And you had 25% of board trustees abstain. I hear from teachers all the time. I hear from teachers, principals, vice principals, constantly. Okay, uh, it's it's like I'm a I'm a sieve, what with water pouring through it. People do want to get their message out there and say, "Greg, this is happening in the school." Greg, this is happening. Greg, here's what you get. Greg, here's what you don't get. I'm all for it. Fine, let's talk about those things. Let's have honest conversations. Okay, um, 
But my God, three out of 12, just, I don't know. Three out of 12. I'm just not sure right now. Take a stand. You were put on the school board to have an opinion and take a stand and live with the consequences and have some semblance of accountability, not just, "Mm, I'm not sure right now. We'll have to decide later on. No, it was the vote last night, dummies. You were supposed to make that decision last night. Now, this vote comes three weeks after the province lifted most mask mandates. I think the two biggest questions on this in Ottawa clearly are, is this in, is this enforceable and how many people will end up complying? What if a teacher does decide I'm rolling right now connecting with my students? What if he or she says, I know it's not enforceable. I know the province has my back. It doesn't really matter what, what else transpires here. I'm going to, uh, you know, rock it in class so, so that kids can see my face. Maybe, by the way, as a teacher, maybe you've had COVID already. Should that not count for something? Maybe you've had COVID recently in the last few months. Maybe you've had Omicron. Maybe you've had uh, BA2 and you're a lot better than you were feeling four weeks ago. It is everywhere right now. Should you get an exemption of some sort? Should you get a credit in the bank of of uh, COVID trust that you get to teach without a mask or not? I would think that's a possibility. I would absolutely think that's that's a possibility. One of the trustees, Donna Blackburn, um, one of the three that actually, one of the nine out of the 12 that actually voted, um, voted against the motion. She said masking is not required in many other parts of society. She said of imposing masks in schools, I refuse to give people a false sense of security. Countered Rito Vanier Capital Trustee Lyra Evans, I think putting this in place will cause more people to wear masks. Well, that's probably true. She's probably right about that. They both have a point. You're going to have more masks in schools per Lyra Evans. She's right about that. She voted in favor of the motion. The false sense of security that Donna Blackburn documents seems like that's an argument as well. What have you decided? Well, my kid's wearing a mask. Let's not worry about that second vaccination shot or even that first one. Now, many kids of a certain age, right, 12 plus, had to get vaccinated in the fall because they needed to play indoor sports or do this or do that. I mean, all these are big issues. I was listening to audio yesterday, and I do think it ties into this story, no doubt about it. Ian Miller is a guest we've had on the show before. Uh, Ian Miller wrote a book, book called Unmasked. And while he doesn't dispute the psychology of wearing masks, he had David Zweig on, who's written for, you know, the New York Magazine, the New York Times, The Atlantic. These are uh, far from far right conspiratorial publications. Oh, my goodness. The Times, The Atlantic, New York Magazine. And Zweig laid it out probably as best I've heard it over the last well, 26 months, and especially the last three months when debates have really gotten emotional. And I get it. I, I understand people saying, you're not going to change my mind. I'm not going to change yours. My only uh, counter to that is the data does lean in one direction for me. For me, it does. I look at a lot of the numbers and I do all, all over the place. And I do question the validity of the mandates, not the masks themselves. The mask, if you wear a KN95 and N95, that's great. That's fantastic. You're very well protected. I'm not sure why you care if anybody else is wearing one around you in an indoor environment. I really don't. I'm being serious. And you've got, obviously, obviously vaccine options. There is that as well. Here's what David Zweig said um, about sort of the, the, the presence of the mask and what it's doing for people. And I don't think he's wrong. There is an intuitive sense that like I'm putting this physical barrier in front of my face 
that it's going to do something. So it's very hard to break that intuition that I think most, quote, normal people have. You know, I'm not even talking about sort of like pro-mask zealots on Twitter. I just mean like a regular person who's like, oh, you know, well, that makes sense. A mask should do something. Um, so I think it's very hard to break that intuition, you know, and then, uh, and then particularly since people, you know, we always see um, surgeons or others wearing a mask. So again, that that reinforces the idea of like, well, a mask is doing something. Otherwise, doctors wouldn't wear them. And so I, I think that's part of it. It's really hard. There's like no amount of data that, that can mm. persuade people out of that kind of just sort of human intuition. And then, you know, I, 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 the other part of, is this kind of obvious one that I'm going to tell you. There's, it's just a political element that gets bundled into, you know, someone's identity and, you know, what it's like um, the sort of semiotics. It's like, what does a mask represent? It becomes your identity, kind of becomes your psychology. And listen, it made sense to implement emergency measures we were willing to throw anything at this thing in the spring and summer of 2020. We didn't have any evidence. Why? It just happened. There's no data. We didn't know what was going on. And many people said, well, should we should we have universal masking? But over the last two years, people's playbooks have changed. Logical people's playbooks have changed in my estimation. And I've seen tons like I could if I printed them out on my printer I'd have to like become friends with Shaquille O'Neal I'd need so much printer ink he, he sells that those printer ink on TV he doesn't just think the Raptors are going to get swept he sells printer ink and the data suggests widespread masking hasn't helped slow down waves okay Hong Kong is a great example massive severe disease recently universal masking but low rates of vaccination and boosting among the elderly. That's a problem. Let's go to cloth masks. All of a sudden, Leona Wen woke up one morning in last November and said cloth masks are basically facial decorations. Well, there would have been weeks of evidence leading up to that before she has the courage and the, just the tenacity to go on CNN, CNN and say that. Why? Well, the vaccines are far more effective at preventing hospitalization and death. All those things are true. Um, it's important to note that Zwieg also said this and made the point that this is probably going to be the way forward is having these honest conversations. I think the media has scared the shit out of a lot of people and they, you know, they're not able to think clearly. And even, and so you combine this sort of intuition of like, I look, I have a mask on my face. This must work. And I've seen doctors wear them and I'm really, really frightened. Why wouldn't I do this? Why shouldn't we force kids to do it? Like, why not? You know, like considering how terrible and scary everything is like, let's just do it. What's the downside? It's so small. It's so small if there is a downside at all. And as you know, there have been plenty of people who argue there's absolutely zero downside of mass. Yeah. And there's tons. There's tons for kids. Did you not watch Dr. Davila earlier this week? Have you not looked into studies about the downside? It's a minor inconvenience for me at the grocery store. Give you that. Could I wear it on an airplane? Yeah, I suppose if I believed in their efficacy. But if you don't, you don't. I love, I sound like you and McGregor talking about stuff in those commercials. I love data. I've always loved numbers. I love numbers in sports. Um, I wish math in high school had stayed just numbers. Once once isosceles triangles were involved and, and little squares I, and rhombuses, I was in big trouble. I was not taking, I was not taking university math. Uh, but our next guest uh, kept going on that front. He's got some fascinating real estate data. And, and we'll talk about also 
um, some of the influence that Pierre Polyev's having um, with this amazing video that that caught fire. It could be a lot of smoke and mirrors, but he's connecting with people. Dr. Mike Moffat is Senior Director of Smart Prosperity, Assistant Prof at Ivy Business School uh, as well. It's great to have you on. So you, um, I saw your chart of this is population zero to four-year-olds by census. You're showing in 10 years, Toronto's lost about 8,000, um, in essence, babies slash toddlers. Ontario's lost about 6,000 in total. This is sort of into COVID a little bit, is, isn't it? Um, Hamilton's gained somewhere. I am in Durham. We've gained a lot, as a matter of fact. London's basically held steady. Um, what do the numbers tell you about pr- Toronto proper losing that many young kids, uh, Mike? Yeah, well, well, some of it is uh, COVID-related. We have seen uh, people move out uh, during the pandemic, but but much of it was actually before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And what it's driven by is, as you can imagine, there there are a lot of uh, couples uh, who live in a 600-square-foot condo in downtown Toronto, and uh, uh, one of them gets pregnant, and uh, you know either the baby arrives or before the baby arrives, they look around the place and then they go, this just ain't going to work. So they basically hop in the car and they drive as far away as they need to go in order to uh, find a home that will uh, be suitable for their family. And that's always occurred through history. I mean, that's nothing that new, but it used to be they would drive to Etobicoke or, or, or Scarborough or maybe Mississauga. Now they're ending up in Woodstock. They're ending up in London. They're uh, ending up in Stratford. So that distance that they're having to drive uh, to find a home, you know, they're more and more leaving the GTA prior, uh, GTA as a whole. Obviously, as you mentioned, Durham uh, has been one of the big beneficiaries over the last ten years. But we've also seen a lot of movement throughout southwestern Ontario. And you're you're uh, you're like me, right? A London kid, like uh, you grew up in in the Forest City, as it were. I, I did, born and raised. Yeah, and so, you, you know, I always find people from London, I think they're getting a better sense of it now, but it was such a big deal, right, for you or me to go with our parents to to go to a Blue Jays game. Or I remember that first time I drove up to Maple Leaf Gardens for a concert. I saw REM when I was in 12th grade, and you're like, you just can't believe it. You're like, you literally feel like country mouse in in big city. It's, it's changed to the point where, I remember my dad telling me when my wife and I were going to move from Michigan to to work for me to take the, the the job I am where I am now in Toronto. And he's like, well, why don't you live in Guelph? Why don't you live in Kitchener? And I'm like, well, I can't go in every day like that. But yep. if you have a job now, Mike, where maybe you need to be in the office, I don't know, four or five times a month, and your wife or your husband can work from home, people are considering, and they're getting <laughs> whatever they bought for downtown because they want to be on the subway line so badly, they are going to Kitchener, and they are going to Guelph, and they are going out further, way further from where they're going to Peterborough. They'll go, they can do these things now that they couldn't do maybe three, four years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we saw some of that during the pandemic, uh, people arranging alternative work arrangements, you know, maybe going in every other day and, and going on the long commutes. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, we're seeing not just people move move to cities, but we've got a lot of communities in Ontario that really hadn't grown much in, in 40 years. All of a sudden, they're booming. Like Tilsonburg, you know, we all think of the Stomp of Tom <laughs> song about agriculture, you know, re- replace tobacco with toddlers. Uh, it's one of the fastest growing communities in Canada. And it's, it's again, just this search for real estate, this search for space. 
you know, people want to have uh, want to have three bedrooms in a safe neighborhood and be able to, to walk their kids to school, and they're not able to get that. Uh, you know, not just in, in Toronto, but increasingly in, in Peel and York regions as well. You make a great point there, and you know, um, I, so I, I'm north of I went to Medway High School, and we're sort of northwest of Arva, closer to Ilderton, and I always res- I, I have a great relationship with my parents, but I always resented it. I'm like, I, I want to be in the city. You got to drive me here. You got to you couldn't wait to get your driver's license when you live in those places like Ilderton and Lucan and, and outside uh, outside the city. But I look back on it now and I'm like, we had a lot of space. We had a lot of room. Uh, we had privacy. We had a huge backyard. And you, like those things cost massive amounts of money right now, don't they? Well, well, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, even if you were a, a person who, you know, didn't want those things, you're just like, I just need three bedrooms. I'd happy to be be happy in a condo. You can't get that in Toronto. No. Really. You can't get that for under a million and a half. So uh, so your options are very, very, uh, very, very limited. But you're, you're right. I mean, I was kind of the, the same way of like, OK, just, you know, I, I want to go to a, a bigger community and uh, that kind of thing. And now, yeah, it's just the uh, the movement is other way. You know, Lucan has grown over twenty percent in the last five years. It's pretty much the fastest growing place in in Canada. Uh, you know, again, just because of that, you know, people are going to where the homes are are getting built, and in these smaller communities, there's less red tape. There's less nimbyism. You know, the yeah. when, when the next door neighbor's a cow, you're not <laughs> they're not going to complain. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's what what we're seeing. Uh, you know, why are people moving to those communities? Well, that's where the homes are getting built. Let me play for the audience. It's about forty seconds of it, but I know you've seen it. I know you've commented on it. This is Pierre Polyev's video in Vancouver um, addressing the cost of home ownership, basically in in any major city and maybe all across Canada, and the difficulty in buying that first home. But this thing got hundreds of thousands of views. Here's some of Pierre's video. Want to see a five million dollar house here in Vancouver? Feast your eyes on the home of your dreams. Here it is, $4.8 million is the listing price for this baby. Now, before I go any further, let me acknowledge that a realtor would tell you you can tear it down and build more units on it. The uh, place next door appears to have about six units on a similar footprint of land. So let's say that you get six units right here. Well, that works out to $800,000 for every single unit just in land costs. But then, of course, you'd need materials and labor to build, and you'd need all the government permits and building uh, and building approvals from City Hall. So that means that each unit is going to be over a million dollars, a million dollars for the privilege of living in a multi-unit housing situation. So that's Conservative Party uh, of Canada candidate uh, for leadership, and he's running for prime minister, by the way. He told you that. Uh, Pierre Polyev, and you wrote something, you crystallized something even this morning that I don't think anyone's put better. The center and left are completely getting their lunch eaten on the housing issue, just a complete failure to sell a compelling vision or message. People want homes, not excuses. And Mike, whether Pierre can pull this off or not, make it easier in the long term, many are skeptical of that. But it doesn't matter. He's making videos that are absolutely connecting with with hearts and souls of people that that's their biggest wish. That's their biggest wish for their kids, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I find the, the funny thing on, on Pierre's message is so he has some demand side stuff about the Bank of Canada. And I'll, I'll ignore that part. But on the supply side, the policies he, he's advocating are really not that much different than what the government is doing. I think you need like an electron mm-hmm. microscope to see the you know, because both of them. Are, are talking about, uh, you know, using the federal government's powers to, you know, get municipalities moving on approvals and that, that kind of thing. But, 
you know, the federal government is using a bunch of 12-letter words. They, they, they sound like my colleagues in, in academia. Uh, you know, they're, they're just talking about how much money they're spending and, you know, the, the nuts and, and bolts of uh, policy, whereas Pierre's talking about vision, and, he, and he's also just cha- channeling that anger that, that people, people have. You know, he's talking to people's hearts instead of their heads. So, you know, and that's my frustration about it, because the policy differences are not that large, Mm -hmm. but he's actually explaining it in a useful way, in a way that the federal liberals simply are not. I got under a minute, but it's always easier to do when you're the challenger. It's easier to do it when you're when you're pushing it. Look, it's easier for whatever missteps we all think um, Doug Ford's made with COVID. It's easier for Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca to say you're you're screwing up this as opposed to saying what they would have done. But with this issue, Mike, I, I again, going through the summer and given that we're now with this alliance, we're years away from an election. They can really push um, the federal liberals on this because, again, relatability gets just gets the job done at the at the box office and at the voting booth, whether people want to admit it or not. Pierre's drawing attention to himself. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll I'll say as well, this is coming from I'm, you know, I consider myself on the center left. Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing that same anger from provincial politicians and the liberals and NDP, you know, so it's not just an opposition versus government. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of progressive parties in opposition, you know, the federal NDP, for instance, are not selling a compelling message the same way that uh, Pierre and other conservatives are. No, a lot of time to uh, to go all through it. Thanks for the look into the data and uh, and your uh, opinion as well, Michael. Always enjoy our conversations. No, thank you for having me. So this is um this is a really interesting story, and there's some backlog to this. There's a lot of people uh, talking about NDP candidates. Um, NDP candidates for the provincial election have been in the news a fair bit. My own riding, you may know, is Ajax. And in late January, when I moved to Ajax, Steve Parrish was the mayor. Steve Parrish was going to run for the NDP. Remember also, it's been a bit of a... Melrose Place as soap opera with this riding because Rod Phillips moved out, got the seat. It was uh, held by the liberals for a couple uh, election campaigns in a row, first uh, via the Kathleen uh, Wynne election and prior to that Dalton McGinty. But um, Parrish was going to run for the NDP, but um, talk surfaced of Parrish showing support for naming a street. I know exactly where the street is after a Nazi battleship captain in 2007. And he was like, there was protest and pushback. And he said, no, this is what we're going to do. Andrea Horvath supported that nomination. Um, As of January 24th, she made comment on it. Then on January 31st, the NDP decided he can't run. So the NDP gets another candidate. You know the story. uh, And if you don't, let me reset it a little bit about Paul Miller. That's an odd one. Um, Paul Miller was told you can't run again. Four term Hamilton MPP can't run in the upcoming election. There was they did some vetting. Well, he's an MPP and he represents Hamilton East Stony Creek. He won't be able to run. Some of it is about Facebook posts. There's a lot of confusion. I don't have a hard and fast opinion on that one. But this recent one. So when things happen a fair bit, you start to be like, what's like, what is going on here? And uh, a Brampton MPP lost a chance to run again. He's one of the few black MPPs that the party has. And Kevin Yard was beaten in a runoff. He made the quote, "Um, I'd rather have had 100,000 people in Brampton North determine my fate as opposed to 150 people at a riding association. He told the stars Robert Benzie that. And there was a lot of internal. I heard from a lot of people who are huge, you know, NDP supporters who are like, 
we're not we don't have our ducks in a row um and and time's time's kind of ticking away here our next guest ran um in uh, a riding and as an ndp perspective mpp and was critical of this process uh, and he's been on some ndp search committees as well and he's kind enough to join toronto today Paul Ferreira joins us on the show on 640 Toronto. That's a long build up to you coming on. I want to thank you for your time. Have I got most of that right? And have you heard a lot of that? They're not even whispers anymore. They're frank discussions about whether um, the nominating process and the vetting process is working right now. Well, first of all, uh, good morning, uh, Greg, to you and, uh, and the listeners. There certainly have been some, uh, shall we say charitably, some hiccups in this particular a cycle, and um, it does speak to the party's uh, internal procedures in terms of identifying and recruiting and ultimately getting candidates uh, nominated or, or not. Um, and this uh, Kevin Yard situation is, is quite unfortunate, and it's something, quite frankly, that should never have been allowed to happen. Um, he, he had done a, a, a very credible job in his first term as, as an MP. This is MPP, mm-hmm. and this is after winning uh, a riding in Brampton North that had never voted NDP before. So imagine that. He makes history on a number of fronts, including being the first uh, black elected member of provincial parliament from Peel region, which is a very diverse region, Brampton, Mississauga, mm-hmm. Caledon. And then he is forced to to go through this process, this uh, nomination process, and uh, he, he loses, and he does not get a chance now to uh, to to run for for a second term. And of course, he's he's indicated that he may end up running as independent, but that that's a pretty tough road to to to, to undertake uh, as as an independent. Uh, so it, it it certainly speaks to the some problems with the process. It's a weird one, right? It's a, it's a, it's not unlike sports. You might like your starting goalie, starting quarterback, and and he may be popular in the locker room, but you may say we got a chance to get somebody else in the off season. But what what is the protocol for that? What if I want if I live in Merritt Styles is really popular, really you know energetic, and and seen as a maybe even a future leader of the NDP. If I lived where she lives and I want to run against her, what are my options? Well, a, as an NDP candidate. Sure, and this 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 is the the, the fundamental problem here. Um, anybody can um, approach the party, the local riding association, and say, "Hey, uh, I'm interested," um, and uh, you're given a, a, a package uh, that you complete uh, includes you know stuff that they then use to to vet your appropriateness as a candidate or not. Um, during that period of time, um, you, you can go out uh, and sell memberships. And really, this this is, you know, for those who say, well, okay, Kevin Yard lost in a democratic process. Well, let me let me tell you, and this is the case for all parties, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is which is why we, we I think we need a serious overhaul or reform of how uh, you know nominations are conducted because they really are backroom procedures that are at the end of the day are not very democratic. If you are a candidate running for a nomination, your job really is to go out and sell memberships, <laughs> memberships in the party, and then you, you get those people out to uh, to a meeting in a in a in a legion hall or in a church basement to come and vote for you on a certain date and time. It is it is far from democratic. I, I mean, I I I was involved in the Democratic Party for uh, you know, the better part of twenty five years from the time I was in high school until 
some policy. Uh, yeah, you, you and I, you and I shared a, a conversation that we both had gone to an Ed Broadbent <laughs> meeting. Boy, the really cool kids in high school, uh, <laughs> the girls just fawned over us. We're like, where'd you go last night? An oh, yeah, Ed Broadbent yeah. rally, and boy, <laughs> the chicks were everywhere, right? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had a Broadbent poster up in my locker, you know, circa grade nine, grade ten, growing uh, up in Brampton, and uh, yeah, let me tell you, <laughs> there were so many of us. It was just, it was the. Yeah, it was like it was like we were Fonzie walking to school the next day for our older demographic. Exactly. Anyway, I I, I throw you off track there. Go ahead. No, that's okay. It's a good stroll down memory lane, right? <laughs> In any case, um, listen, you go out and you sell a, a whole bunch of memberships, and and that's how you win uh, you win uh, the nomination meeting. And I've seen and, and memberships in the NDP, they're five dollars or ten dollars each. I mean, I've seen prospective candidates show up with wads of five and ten dollar bills. <laughs> provincial office and say, here you go. Now, you know, each individual is supposed to pay for their own memberships, but come on, Greg, you and I, you and I know that, you know, sometimes uh, people are creative. Um, so the process is far from democratic. And, uh, you know, I, I, perhaps what the, what's happened to Kevin Yard and Andrea Horvath's, uh, you know, uh, late commitment to reviewing this after the election, that maybe we need to look at a much more open and democratic system to nominate candidates from all parties. And for that, you know, as much as I, you know, I have some criticisms of the American political system, perhaps we need to be looking at their system of open primaries, uh, you know, run uh, by third party, uh, you know, organization. And we have that provincially in elections, Ontario and federal elections, Canada. And we have primaries, open primaries, and all voters are eligible, not just party members. And you show up at your, you know, the polling station, you're riding, and you say, hey, I declare uh, as a new Democrat, and so therefore I'm taking part in the NDP primary. And that goes back to Kevin Yard's point that he would much rather have been judged by the, the, all the voters of his riding than by the people who bought $10 memberships from, uh, from the fellow who, uh, who knocked him off for the, the nomination. Well, give me, give me a, a quick answer on this one. Can the leader, I mean, can they just look at polling and say, we think we're in some trouble here. We need, we need to recoup this. By the time you have the general election, if you don't win the seat, you lose, you lose the riding, it's too late. Can I make that case? That would be, now that the, the process has, has, has been completed, uh, it would be very, very difficult for uh, the party to reverse course. Um, uh, unless you know you well, find information that that deems the candidate uh, no longer uh, suitable, so I, I don't think that that would that that would happen at this point. Um, but in in terms of of Horvath's uh, um, influence here, uh, all it would have taken is a phone call from from her or from a senior member of her team to say, "Hey, listen, uh, this is problematic." The challenge to uh, to a popular incumbent who who, who frankly represents uh, a great deal of good. Um, we'd like to suggest mm. that you consider running in a neighboring riding, and this could have been prevented. We wouldn't be talking about this. Kevin Yard would be seeking re-election. Um, the party wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, look as bad as they look, um, and Andrea Horvath wouldn't have to take questions about this, you know, four weeks before a campaign starts. So it's just okay. it's, it's a colossal 
mistake on the party's part. Paul Ferrer is our guest. I want to reset that 640 Toronto. My last one for you, you, you tweet um, two days ago, I hope Ontario NDP members will, who still defend the dear leader and you capitalize the dear and you capitalize the leader, start paying attention because what happened to Kevin Yard is not okay. And yes, the leader in her office could have intervened. Is it the process itself or is it Andrea Horvath saying, I, I don't, I didn't know anything about this is news to me because again, I bring up the examples of, of the other cases with um, Steve Parrish, where uh, they, they look like they got kind of caught with their pants down in the vetting process, and Paul Miller as well. That's Again, all those are independent cases, but when it starts to add up, you, you look like you've got some disorganization and dysfunction in your party. Let me, let me just be frank. There is, there is no possible way that her office would not have been aware of what was happening in Brampton North, and uh, you, you've, you've referred to, to crumbs on the trail in this particular instance. Uh, you know, I, I mean, she's, she's, one, she's the one who would have ultimately decided to can Paul Miller. Um, she, she intervened to, to uh, get rid of Steve Parrish after, I am certain, she worked to recruit Steve Parrish. Uh, oh, yeah. And they're, I know that. I know the area. They, 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 begged, they kind of begged him, to be honest. Absolutely. He was retired. He, he's done Absolutely. with politics. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, absolutely. So for her to say that, oh, I, I don't get involved in nomination races, I, I wasn't aware of what was happening, that is, that is you know, less than truthful. And all it would have taken, it, like I say, all of it would have taken is, is one, one, one phone call to, to Mr. Singh, who, you know, I, you know I listen, I hope, I hope he, he does well and I hope he's, he's a fine candidate. But all it would have done was one phone call to say, listen, well, there, there, there's some problems here, uh, and we we could have prevented this. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there, there are pri- and listen, I, I've, mm. I've had some longstanding critiques of the the, the current leadership, and then those are, are well publicized. Mm. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens June the second, right? Um, people will decide, and then after June the second, depending on the result, NDP supporters, NDP party members will get to decide on that too. Um, so here we are. Paul Ferreira, our guest. It's great having you on. Uh, it's an awesome conversation. And, and let's have more. Let's have more certainly before June 2nd, okay? I would love to. Thank okay. you, Greg. Great to have you on. Uh, Paul Ferreira joining us. Yes, it is National Scrabble Day. Do you guys play Scrabble? Do you guys play board games? Oh, yeah. I love Scrabble. Yep. I don't tend uh, to play the board game version, but we've, we've found an iPad um, app, and yes. then the four of us as a family played a lot, like before bedtime when they were, we played so, a lot of Uno and a lot of Scrabble. Yeah. Wait, do you guys have all four of your devices like sitting in front of each other playing Scrabble, no, or are you just, on it's, one it's device? pass and play. Why not just buy the board game? Because <laughs> then the pieces get lost. <laughs> Who has time oh for my that, Shiba? Stratego, <laughs> I tried that with Stratego, <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like, where's the marshal? The oh general fell under the couch again. We can't be having this. <laughs> okay, Where are all fine. the bombs? That's yeah, yeah. Hilarious. I love it, though. I love it. Okay, well, it is National Scrabble Day. Scrabble was invented in 1937, guys, by an architect named Alfred Butts. So I'm going to ask you some questions on False. how well you know the board game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question number one. True or false? Scrabble's original name was Lexico. Greg. True. Dave. Yeah, I, I think that sounds plausible. I'm going to go true. Gord. Well, let's go false. It'll be different. It's true. Uh, yes. Lexico, it was a shortened version of Lexicon. Lexicon, And that yeah. was his original name. Yeah, it totally oh, makes sense. Okay, question number two for yeah, the Gord comeback. Makes sense, Gord. Gord. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. <laughs> Follow the logic. Follow the science. Yeah, right. 
Okay, in the last few years, many new words have been added to the official Scrabble dictionary. Which one of the following words has not been added? Emoji, Bitcoin, or Bay? Like Dave. Oh, like B E Y or B A E? B A E. Greg's so old. Hashtag Greg's so old. B A E. Oh, bay, I, like my bay. Like oh, what did I say? B oh, B E Y. I'm sorry. I spell. I actually spelled it wrong. I'm. I know you meant, and I said the wrong I thing. Get, I can just say bay as the word oh. that has not been added to Scrabble. Okay, Gord. I believe emoji. Greg, <laughs> I'm going emoji. Also, I want to go out of left field. A, I I think bay's there. It's a good word, though. Dave's knocking it out of the park. Dave. Bay has Boom. not been added, and a bay is a person's boyfriend or girlfriend in slang, in young people's language. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the thing. Is the Scrabble dictionary is pretty hoity-toity, right? Yeah. So they would be like, yeah, that is. A <laughs> but emoji's slang. a word. No, emoji's an actual word now. I but, think even in like the that's right. regular dictionary. But yes. you're not allowed using slang no. terms in Scrabble. No so that's the thing. Yeah. If only Cam Newton had just t stayed talking about bays. Nah. Yeah. Okay, number three, true or false? <laughs> Scrabble is ranked as the best board game in U.S. history. Gord. Oh, false. Greg. False, and I'm going to tell you, I bet it's Monopoly, yeah. but I know I don't get extra. Yeah, Gord yeah. and I are in lockstep on this day. On. Pressure's but, on. But, <laughs> don't fall to peer pressure yeah, here. But, you don't have to conform. The cool kids are over here. All right. <laughs> well, I'm going to go against. I'm going to say no. <laughs> Or, or yes, or whatever they, whatever didn't, they say. didn't say. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so go, they, go they're Auntie Brady false. is usually a good way to go. You guys are all right. It's false. Monopoly is number one. Yeah. And all Scrabble's right. number two, though. Scrabble's yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I wouldn't Last have question. even said that. Okay, okay, okay. Last question. How many tiles are on a Scrabble board? Whoa. 400, 175, or 225? Dave. 175. Gord. 225. Greg, I think one four. Dollar. I think. Oh, what's that? Did you just <laughs> one dollar? You must in already. <laughs> You're like Burt Reynolds on uh, on uh, Saturday Night Live on, on uh, Jeopardy. You're like, no, I didn't, I didn't buzz in. Um, I got. Would would it have to be a round number? So I'll say four hundred. Okay, it's two twenty-five. Oh. Gorge, you made your comeback. Two hundred twenty-five tiles on a Scrabble board. How's there it a wrong number? How? Why isn't it an even number? Because it has to go to a center point, and that you can't have. Yes. That. Oh yeah, that's does but Oh, that's math, really smart. Math. Sorry, I'll take my bronze medal out of this particular particular day. play you a clip from uh, a podcast uh, from D uh, David Zweig, who uh, writes about uh, COVID a fair bit in New York Times, The Atlantic, and whatnot. Uh, but this is the Stranger Things trailer. I know this uh, from ha having two teenage boys that were obsessed with the first three seasons. I thought it was kind of lagging a little bit. Shows lag by the third or fourth year. Um, but uh, this trailer wowed me. Here's just some of it. Note the rework of Journey's separate ways, worlds apart in the mix. Ever since you left, everything's been a total disaster. For a while, we tried to be happy. Normal. I know that's impossible. I relocated you guys far from Hawkins because I thought you'd be safe.
I'm afraid your friends at Hawkins are very much in the eye of the storm. That's all you need to say, man. I'm in. Stranger Things uh, season four. <laughs> Chiba, um, Stranger Things? Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, and that's same with us. That's the one show we all agree on as a family. Have Other than the younger two, like the older two and us, we watch it together. Yes. Have all have the younger kids, uh, can they adapt it? Because probably when it started, you would have had like a two or three-year-old. Like this this started in 2016, yeah, No, he wouldn't watch it. He wouldn't. But I mean, we're not, don't look at us because we mistakenly let them watch Squid Game with us. So, <laughs> And some had nightmares for weeks and were in our bed for weeks. So we're not the example of what to watch. Oh, there kids. was some, uh, some, some co-sleeping happening after that, uh, as it were. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think with Stranger Things as well, my eight-year-old, she was seven at the time, I think, when she got into it. And it's a good show. It will catch your attention right at that age. It will because you can identify with the kids. Uh, But yeah, she was scared. So um, here's, I got two thoughts on the trailer. One, I wondered how they could do this with the kids getting older because they don't look this like they all look. Oh, puberty has hit. Puberty has hit. There's some yes. hair in some weird places on the face. There's some voices that have dropped. Um, is it like this Finn Wolfhard guy is in like who plays uh, Mike Wheeler? He's in like a band and like a punk band. He was just in the new Ghostbusters movie in the summer, yes. right? Yes. Um, and Millie Bobby Brown. Remember the last time I spoke about her on the radio, we were like, we need Drake to stop like messaging her. It's like. Drake was messaging her. I don't remember. Yeah, that. it's sort of like yeah, it felt kind of awkward that uh, he's she's like we're best friends, and I'm like, oh, you got an well, issue with me talking about Kira Knightley at age 18? No, I would love to be best friends was, with Drake. Drake, call me. Yeah, but when you're a 14 year old girl, can you be friends with a 33 no, year old rapper? I think her character's really cool. Elle is it's a awesome. really cool character. So I mean, having to, getting to say you know her, come on, if you saw her somewhere, wouldn't you go say hi? I think you would. I think you would. Here's my problem. I think Winona Ryder is like it's just the same thing. The mom is too hysterical all the time. Um, That's the point, though. I love. I Winona. know, but there's not there's not a lot of been a lot of development. It's been a huge comeback for Winona <laughs> Ryder, who was a massive star for about eight years, and I worry they've just typecast her as hysterical Karen-esque mom who just well, who just panics canceled. and screams at everybody. Do you remember she was canceled well, she because was shoplifting? of the shoplifting instance? Yes, the shoplifting. She's in one of my favorite movies, Girl Interrupted. I loved her. Girl I've Interrupted's loved great. Her. Yeah, one of my favorite, one of the best movies out there. But she, I remember she was canceled because she was she got caught shoplifting in Hollywood, I think on Rodeo Drive. Like If you're not looking to get caught anywhere, that's the place you're going to get caught. And uh, yeah, I don't think back. I don't think, well, I think she was kind of, Fading as a as a career entity anyway. I don't think she was a massive star when she got caught shoplifting, right? But she was a massive star at one point, and she dated Johnny Depp, Depp, and that was that whole thing, right? Johnny Depp. Yeah, I remember that. Well, we all make bad that- choices. Who made the bad choice? Winona Ryder. Johnny oh, Depp's okay. insane. Okay. <laughs> I know, I know. But like, Twenty One Jump Street days, he was great. I know. I know, and uh, and I think they met doing Edward Scissorhands. But she's great in Heather's. You've you seen Heather's? I haven't. You gotta see Heather's know, from 1989. Um, she's great in that. Like that. That's a massive, massive reality bites. She's a huge star, right? With Ben Stiller and that made Ethan Hawke's career roll. Um, yeah, I can't wait to. I can't wait to see this. By the way, Gord will know this. Then the then we showed our son. I said that's an amazing. That's the best use of of journeys separate ways. Then we showed uh, my 13 year old son the the video where they're playing like air drums and air. It's one of the worst. <laughs> How did I describe it to my wife? One of the worst. Best songs and worst video combinations ever. Because there's some bad songs that have bad yeah. videos. And there's some song, good songs that have good videos. This was the highest ratio for great tune. Terrible video. Yeah, this, it goes... They're probably not into making videos. Because at that time, you, you had to make a video. Did, and yeah. Just, no, and that's why you saw a lot of just concert footage. 
right? It's just like, ah, give it up. They should have done that. You can't play air keyboard in no. a video. That's what the guy was. You can play air. Everybody <laughs> play air. You can't play air keyboard. Um, all right. So David's week was on uh, Ian Miller's podcast. We had Ian Miller on who wrote a book called Unmasked. Um, talking about Matt. I, I thought this was interesting given what happened in Ottawa, and we'll reset that, but I want you to hear the clip because um, uh, Sheba and I haven't had a chance to talk about it together, and and I think it's good to uh, good to have a, a sense of whether I'm crazy, and I think this guy's right on the money. This is him talking about the psychology of wearing a mask, and, and I related to it for months on end as a result. Here's what he said. There is an intuitive sense that like I'm putting this physical barrier in front of my face that it's going to do something. So it's very hard to break that intuition that I think most, quote, normal people have. You know, I'm not even talking about sort of like pro-mask zealots on Twitter. I just mean like a regular person who's like, oh, you know, well, that makes sense. A mask should do something. Um, so I think it's very hard to break that intuition, you know, and then, uh, and then particularly since people, you know, we always see um, surgeons or others wearing a mask. So again, that that reinforces the idea of like, well, a mask is doing something, otherwise doctors wouldn't wear them. And so I, I think that's part of it. It's really hard. There's like no amount of data that can persuade people out of that kind of just sort of human intuition. And then, you know, I, I, I the other part of, is this kind of obvious one that I'm going to tell you, there's, it's just a political element that gets bundled into you know, someone's identity and, you know, what it's like, um, the sort of semiotics. It's like, what does a mask represent? Yeah. It's not that Shiva, that's not being uh, glib or dismissive of, of how people feel. That's how I felt until I got vaccinated. I'm like, the mask is keeping me safe when I go here, when I go there, when I go there, when I go here. And then later on, they told us, um, it doesn't, it doesn't the, that cloth thing on your face, that facial decoration, it doesn't keep you that safe. The vaccines do. And we never should have equated those two things. But the psychology, make, if you if you wear a seatbelt everywhere you go, and if all of a sudden I said, stop wearing seatbelts, they don't do anything, you'd have a tough time believing that for a long time. I think there has been so much mixed messaging, and I think everyone is confused. And we're just trying to do everything we can to prevent ourselves and the people around us from getting this virus if you haven't had it already or you don't want it again. So I think it's just... At this point, Greg, people should just do what, what they're comfortable with. And for me, I will do anything. Tell me what I need to do. I will do anything so my kids can have a normal childhood. That's my focus. You need me to wear a mask. You need me to do this. You need me to do that. Fine. Let my, leave the kids out of it. But if your board votes tonight, and they will, I don't oh. know, they will, if your board voted tonight and said, <laughs> we're doing what Ottawa's doing, everybody, put them, put the, after four weeks of seeing faces, Kids being kids, mental health, generally speaking, being improved. All I can tell you is about my own household and the parents that talk to me. I, I tell you if there were people going, nah, this is bad news, man. Um, but but if if that happens in your household, how does that make you feel? I will feel devastated. And I'll tell you why, because I because of my five year old. So I have four kids. My middle two have never taken off their masks. Every, you know, we every few days I have a conversation with them. They're just not comfortable. Maybe it's because a lot of their class, the students are still wearing their masks. My older one, he took it off. He he'll put it on. He doesn't care. Uh, but my youngest, my five-year-old going into kindergarten, seeing his peers, learning to pronounce those words, seeing his teacher's mouth as she pronounces the letters, connecting with people. I don't want him to think that that's how we connect with, you know, not seeing people's facial expressions, not being able to communicate in that way as children. That's that's my focus. That's my concern. I, I just I don't want us to take two steps back. It's just so confusing. It's the government messaging, the mm. the Twitter doctors messaging. Everything is so confusing. Yeah, and I'm hearing you probably are too from a lot of people that uh, hate the tone of the conversation. They hate the 
Um, I, 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 I didn't mention it on the air yesterday, but I certainly mentioned it on Monday night. Ian Hannah Mansing, right, from the National, tweets out, you know, can we have a better conversation? Can we all calm down a little bit? And he gets pounded on, like attacked and pushed around. By, by very specific people, though. Yeah. He pointed out doctors attacking doctors, doctors and scientists that are attacking each other. And he was attacked by those doctors and scientists. And, the, he, and he's like, there's something ironic about my first tweet. And I'm like, you, you bet there is. Like the tone and the uh, viciousness. I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm telling these doctors, I'm hearing from very front-facing doctors who aren't doing this. And my, my message back to them is, you got to say something, but nobody wants to pound on other colleagues, right? We do this in the media, too. We don't all have to agree on what we do, who we talk to, all our messaging and whatnot. But it's that it's that common phrase. You don't poop where you eat. And so never mind just in our place um, where I think we got a really supportive radio station here of each other, even when we disagree on issues. But I don't want to go on the air and rail on somebody on CBC. I don't want to be overly critical about a news. I'll just say I disagree, but I don't want to personalize it. And Sheba, we're seeing a ton of personal attacks and then they become professional attacks. Like Mm -hmm. you're trying to hurt people. You don't care as much as I do. You don't care if babies die. It's terrible language. It's awful messaging and it's exhausting and horrifying. We saw what happened at the beginning of this pandemic when there were certain medical experts who came forward and started questioning things, started questioning the government's decisions. And those, those experts were canceled. The Ontario Medical Association was specifically reached out to them and said, you cannot say this. You cannot make these statements. You cannot promote this. And it was anti-government and they were reprimanded. And so I think a lot of people, there's that as well. Yeah. That how are people going to react to them and are they, are their careers are on the line. Totally. Let's talk, let's talk more about this tomorrow. See what the reaction is uh, for Ottawa. Again, all, all we can do is what we do. And when it comes to poli- I got no time for politics. I got no time for panic. I got no time for your ideology. Do you think something works? Fantastic. Do it for you. Recommend, wear that medical grade mask. Wear it. Get it to vulnerable people indoors. We got to boost more vulnerable people. All those things. But if I believe mask mandates affected spread of COVID-19 post-Omicron, I'd tell you, I, I, I would absolutely be all for it. I don't think the mandates work. I'm trying to find a place where they do. And, and I asked two guests yesterday and they didn't have an answer either. Great to have you listening. Thanks so much for doing it. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow. You can hear it on the Radio Player Canada app or you can hear us on 640toronto.com. Thanks for listening.